Hello and welcome to the Leading Communities podcast, brought to you by Aspire for You CIC, Ideal Directions Marketing and hosted by That's All Media CIC. This podcast has been put together to help community leaders learn from proven leaders from proven organisations. My name's Marianne Delaney and I'll be your host. In today's podcast, we will be focusing on health and behaviour, and we have health psychologist Alison Trout with us, as well as Kieran Soda, GP with an interest in understanding the root cause of disease and mental health. Welcome, everyone. All right, thanks for joining us. We also have Kit Shawande, who will be joining us on behalf of Kate Walker. Do you want to let us know a bit more about Kate and yeah, her so, organisation? Uh, uh, Kate Walker uh, runs steps to your healthy future uh they're uh, well they're a charity actually uh based in birmingham um and they do a lot of delivery of uh interventions around diabetes uh interventions that are trying to help people with behavioral change and just making healthy choices so they've tried to run different things like campaigns they're active in handsworth at the moment um, as we speak um and it's uh, quite a small organization that's you know, got ambitions to do more. So their journey of leading communities is more from a health perspective. So that's where your uh, expertise uh, come in. Uh, do you want to tell us maybe a couple of things about yourselves, your background, how you got into your particular area? And then we'll shoot into uh, Katie's question. Alison, do you want to go yeah. first? So, um, yeah, so as you say, I'm a health psychologist and I've, my background is really mainly in public health. So I've worked in both like provider services and um, worked as community lead for, um, for uh, public health and more recently as kind of leading on behavioural science. Um, so I also work as a clinician, so uh, with people with uh, diabetes. Um, so, yeah, my name is Dr. Kieran Soda. I'm a GP and... Um, I don't know how to keep the story short. So I want to sort of tell you about how I got into what I do now. Um, and a lot of that comes from some of the books I started reading after I qualified as a GP. And the reason for that was because I was finding, especially in mental health and with, with conditions such as anxiety and depression, I was finding I was putting people on tablets, but the tablets weren't curing them. They were just helping or managing or palliating, or so even sometimes we're having to continuously increase his tablets without seeing clear benefits. And so I started on this reading journey. In fact, the, the books I was reading were, were business type books, leadership books, but also other type medical books and looking in turn, in, into sort of alternative medics, medicine. And I read a book and that book changed everything that I, that I feel that I learned from medical school. Um, essentially, I feel that medical school had given us this great physi physiology and understanding and biomedical understanding of the body. But then by the time we'd finished medical school, we were taught to treat everything with either drugs or surgery. That was essentially the way, way I found that we were taught. And there was a complete disconnect between the last three years of med school, which was all about pharmacology and the clinical side of it. And the first two years, which was all this physiology and, and beautiful bio biochemical stuff that we learned but actually weren't applying it to, to what we were doing. Um, and after that, I embarked on a journey and spent quite a lot of money on learning a whole new set of, learning a whole new set of tools to try and um, treat patients. So I, I became a member of the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. That was inaugurated around the same time. So I was one of the founding members of that. And I started doing a lot of training in functional medicine. And essentially all of these come down to the root cause. What is going on that's driving illness to the point or, or developing illness in the first place? So rather than just attacking it from the front end, essentially trying to treat things straight away, also looking 
in the long term how we can prevent those diseases from developing and essentially not just managing them but trying to cure them or trying to end them excellent okay so um leading from that because that's actually a, a really good um starting point so kate from um steps to your healthy future her first point is is really around there are lots of projects and voluntary organizations in the community that give help and advice we find it difficult to encourage people to come and see if we can help them how do we get communities to change behaviors and engage with us. So this question is really about how do you start an engagement journey? So, you know, there's community, a community service that offers something around diabetes. People probably a bit curious or something like that, but how do we actually start them engaging with us? What are your thoughts? I'd say the most successful organizations that I've seen engaging um, with the community successfully are those that kind of start at the grassroots level. So they start with the community and bring the community with them. So they might start, and I can think of a good example of an organisation that I've worked with um, in a previous role, where they actually, they were kind of um, a kind of horticultural project. Um, and they went out into the community, it's a very deprived area um, of Birmingham, went out into the community and just started to dig and started to kind of like, you know, kind of like um, dig up the ground that they were kind of going to do the work on. And then the community kind of came out and said, what are you doing? Um, so they, and then they said, well, we're just trying to kind of make a community garden here. So then the community came out and they started to help and they started and then they took ownership of it. Um, and it was really and it has been really successful. And the, and the organisation have recently run the MB, MBE, I think about a few weeks ago. Um, incredibly successful, engaged with lots of people in the community, particularly people with learned disabilities, people with mental health problems, people with um, uh, people in the criminal justice system. Um, it's been very successful. So I'd say um, that would be one way to, to engage. Um, uh, definitely important but also if you don't know if you're not sure then go and ask the community who are your target groups who do you want to get feedback from go out to the places that you know your target community go to ask the questions and um, if you if you're able to um look at you know kind of you can look at the literature what are there other things going on other other areas that are similar that you can um, draw on from what what made it successful what made them successful um, you can also do focus groups if you feel that that if you have the resource to do that, they can be really insightful. Um, talking to other stakeholders that are involved in that community can also really help. So I'd say that's the way to find out a bit more about why the community might not be engaging with you and the facilitators, which might mean that they do engage with you in future. Okay, so um, with that facilitator journey, just um, maybe explain that a little bit more. In terms of finding out um, the facilitators to what would um, make it more likely that okay. they would engage. Okay. And I suppose the key things are finding out about um, what we talk about in behavioural science is the, um, the framework called the COMBI, which essentially stands for capability opportunity and motivation if those things aren't in place then people won't um, do the behavior okay so often we provide people with as councils or the nhs we might provide people with the opportunity particularly councils or the capability to some extent but we don't provide we don't think about the motivation often um and that's really important and we need to factor these things in because if something 
is motivating a person not to do that activity, then what you need to create a motivation which is stronger than the motivation not to do that activity. And what's the B and the I in combi? Com, com is, B is the behavior. Uh-huh. So C is so it's a C capability. Opportunity. People, yeah, motivation. Opportunity, motivation. If those things aren't in place, then people won't do it. And the other thing to I think is that's really important is another behavioural insights team um, brought out another framework called EAST, which is that you need to make sure that you make things easy for people. So it's an acronym, attractive, sociable and timely. Okay, so in terms of making things easy, take away any friction costs, as we call them. So what's, you know, so for example... Um, why might that person not be attending? Is it because there's two, they have to get two buses to get there? Is it because you're asking them to fill out a lengthy form beforehand um, and to make it attractive to people? So what is it people in the community find attractive? So if you're looking at physical activity, what activities do they find attractive? It's not the same as we might find attractive. They might not, everybody doesn't want to go for running, so it might be something completely different. So true. Yeah. And the sociable? Sorry. Sociable, yeah. So making it sociable. So and, and the obviously the impact there as well is um, on mental health. Um, if you're looking at physical activity, if you can make things sociable, then your people find it more attractive. Um, they're more likely to have benefits to their mental and physical health by doing it. And it kind of, yeah. Untimely. And timely. So things like um, starting a, a campaign at the start of the new year when people set New Year's resolutions. So, for example, being more fit and healthy and stop smoking or going on a diet. Um, or activities um, around the summer holidays when kids are going off on holiday. So you know that they're probably the likelihood is they're going to take those options off. So, yeah. Sorry, Karen, you were saying? Yeah, I was going to say that that really resonates with me. Um, And actually, you said two frameworks there, the combi and the east. Both is the first time I'm hearing about them. But the combi, is that still used as much? That is is, um, a gold standard kind of framework. It's a model. So it's a model that sits and there's a framework called the behaviour change wheel that Mm. sits around it. But um, com is a really easy, simple Mm. way for you to think about you know you just think why aren't these boys and somebody doing something is it and they just kind of straight away think is it because what can i do about it to increase their capability their motivation or their i I was going to say that east actually appeals more to me than than combi because those those words that it's using seem easier to sort of understand and then try and understand why something isn't working for example easy and attractive why isn't something attractive Whereas using the word capability for a lot of people might be a bit, a bit, be a bit more abstract. Somehow. I think I think um, how you can, might see the combi model is that the com part of it is about diagnosing what the issue is, mm-hmm. and then the east framework helps you then to address it. So oh, right, how do okay. we make it? You know, if it, um, it's just a kind of they're both useful to consider whenever you're doing anything really. So they're actually um, slightly different contexts in which you use sli- them. Yeah, but you can yeah. use them together. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's slightly different. Mm. Yeah. Is it more of a progress really? So you'd start off with the combi to kind of figure out yeah. exactly what you want to do and how you want to solve an issue. Um, and then the second part is the connecting to the individuals that you want to, well, basically help really. Yeah, so you work out and then you decide on strategies to address. Um, 
without, I don't want to get into the complexities because yeah. there is a framework <laughs> that sits around the comm model, so I'm trying to keep it easy. But I think just to just then you you need to work out how you would then address, and there are ways to do that by using the behaviour change wheel, which is kind of beyond probably the scope of this conversation, but that does really help. But it's um it just it's making you think making you think really about what's going on in this situation, what haven't I considered. What might I, and when you're designing in a new campaign or intervention to think about how do we use East, how do we make this easy for people? Just simple things like putting, if, you're, if you've got a new activity, putting a map of where it is into the letter or to the leaflet or whatever it is really helps because people can see it and it has a really big impact on um, the likelihood of people attending. Just something simple like that. Uh, Dr. Kieran, behaviour, like how do we... Um, well, I'd, I'd written down a list and actually there's just so, so many similarities um, between what Alison said as well. So I've written my list was trust. People need to trust that the information or the behaviour change or whatever it is that we're trying to engage with the community, they need to trust it. Um, we need to make it easy. So that, that's where it goes with easy with East. Um, because if we don't make it easy, then then the alternative is just so much easier, which is the status quo or whatever they're doing at the moment. Um, and listening to their wants um, and for them to understand what we're trying to achieve for them as well, I think that's really important. And again, that's, that's about getting the right stakeholders around the table. So you're going to find that you've got decision makers who've got the power with the purse strings and where money flows and what kind of happens. But then at the same time, you've got the people with the knowledge or the people who would know perhaps how best that, that, that could be used on the ground. And so bringing those two together and making sure they're having the conversations, I think is really important. I think there's, there's actually a graph, I can't remember what it's called. On one end, there's your, there's your people who know what, or the people who it affects, and then you've got your decision makers, and it's about bringing them two together, essentially. So in, in some ways, the, I, the answer's not necessarily exciting but it's very practical which is immerse yourself in that community that you're trying to do things with take the time to get to know them actually give a damn about them and then just you know things then evolve gradually now this is obviously a, a wider question but in your maybe experience or as a guess how long does it take to spend time be building trust? How long does it take to start to assess capabilities, opportunities? Like, how, yeah, how long does listening take? It's a very hard question, but it's deliberately hard because the average social entrepreneur, the average organization, maybe is living month to month and they need to get impact, they need to get results. So how should they be thinking about the time to dedicate to doing the right thing? That's a really difficult question. Yeah, yeah, and, then, yeah, and it's, it's an open oh, thought uh, yeah. discussion, you know. I think, um, in my experience, it can take a while because um, it depends on the context. If if you're from a if you're on a, if you if it's a, the starting position is that the community don't trust that organisation that you're working for already, then it can be a more difficult job. Um, or if there's certain that, um, characteristics they associate that organisation with. Some organisations are more trusted than others. Um, so if they trust an organisation to start with, it's much, I guess it's much easier. Um, so it, some of the work has to be made about make, building bridges to start with. But if that's not an issue, um, I think I'd say a, a, the most valuable thing is probably 
going out and speaking if you've got limited time to the key people and asking and getting a really in-depth insight spending proper time with them understanding the context that they're working in or living in so that you get a full insight into that because um that's gold really because yeah i think that's the key thing if you can have if you can run focus groups fantastic but they do take more resource there yeah i haven't got experience on a on a large scale with communities but on a one-on-one with individuals in general practice it can it can vary hugely um and i find that the further you your appearances or your cultural background is to that person as a rough roughly that increases the time that it takes to develop that trust and i think that's just human nature so if someone comes in about my age dressed similarly to me i think they're more likely to trust me and they're more likely to open up um initially compared to someone else who's of a different age to me and maybe who's female may be less likely to open up but there's that but that that report always builds it always just it i don't think you can put time on it but you can build it doing the right thing takes time yeah is the ultimate answer and and i suppose if people are in it for the long haul then it just needs to be done yeah that's great okay and then the next question uh from kate is really uh centered around uh looking at you know uh doing the right things for one's own health on a consistent basis. And she asks, uh, how do you think we can support people to make long-term behavior changes? I, I think, Alison, you're probably more, more of the expert on this, but I've got, I've got my own opinion on yeah, it yeah. too. I mean, do you want to start with yours? Yeah. Where, where, I've, where, I'm, where I come from on this is a little bit from understanding my, my experience on pa- with patients, reading those books that I've been reading, um, and also I've been studying an MBA at Warwick. And one of the um, modules that we do is around behavior in the workplace. And a lot of this um, that we're talking about today is is very similar to that. So for me, it's about extrinsic or intrinsic motivation. So meaning what are the external factors that we motivate people or what is it internally that motivates people? And if we hit intrinsic motivation, so those that make people compelled to do things without even thinking about it, then I think, I think that's what will get people to consistently make change. And so to do that, I think the biggest thing is it just needs to be easy. And people need to n- not realize why they're doing their change, those changes. So, for example, um, one of the books that I read, which was hugely powerful, is a book by Daniel Bretner, which is called The Blue Zones. And he's done a second book, which is how, how you can change your life based on these blue zones. And these blue zones are essentially where people are living the longest and the healthiest and they're not correlated at all to those areas who are most m- more affluent or have the best access to healthcare. and so these people what they're doing they're not doing things for three months in a year they're not doing things just in certain periods they're doing things consistently day in day out and it's those little things such as not doing a marathon once a year but actually walking every day those are the things that are making the biggest difference. But the difference between that is it's easy to walk every day if you have to go to work and it's three miles away and you don't have access to a car, then you have to do that exercise. But if you have access to a car, then you don't need to do that exercise. And so you will take the easiest route possible. So if that person got hold of a bicycle, probably take the bicycle. But if you've got a car, you'll take the car because it's even easier. And I think it's about that intrinsic motivation. So that's a really good kind of point that you said that actually, yeah, make it easier 
in order for 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 it to be uh, accessible uh what would your thoughts okay so yeah and i completely agree with what you you said there um and particularly around the intrinsic motivation and making it easy i think i think the thing is if a behavior is to become so say for example we're looking at getting somebody to become more physically active um, a new behaviour like that takes a while to become a habit. So the average is around three months before something becomes a habit, although it varies, okay, depending on what the what the behaviour is. So I think if you can get people to that point, then um, that's the point at which they can like loose your hand, if you like, and then they can, you can you can kind of say with some degree of certainty that that behaviour might be maintained. Um, so that's the key thing. So sometimes getting people started is. Uh, the easy part is kind of getting them to maintain that behavior um and i think the other thing is people like people do know generally what's healthy and what isn't and what they should be eating and what they shouldn't be eating um but the problem is that if they see others in their environment who are doing not doing the healthy behavior or the environment isn't conducive with that healthy behavior so their work environment or their home environment or their that wherever they're living isn't conducive with that so they haven't got access to to certain things then they're less likely to do it and i think the thing is as well that the more we know about behavioral science what we're starting to understand is that it's easier to change the environment than it is to change people's minds because um we can spend we've spent in public health for years we spent a lot of time looking at how we can get people to read leaflets and weigh up the pros and the cons um and actually that doesn't it's not that effective and, it, and it's got the potential to increase health inequalities because the people who do do that tend not to be the our target groups many times so i think um there's more and more evidence that changing the environment is the best way to do that whether that's changing the environment in a small way through nudges in so when you go and buy food in a shop you bring the fruit and the vegetables close to the front and push the healthy and healthy stuff to the back or whether that's um changing it's so smaller one of the most effective things for losing weight is uh, portion control plates um so things like that and also or you know kind of the wider environment the infrastructure um building cycle lanes um you know kind of having bike stands so people can see that they're a normal part of the environment uh, can all make a big change um and i think there's some really good examples of um uh, successful uh, initiatives can i mention the name yeah. of one there's an initiative called beat the street i don't know if you've heard of it but that is um to gp that started that up actually um and it's basically um it it gets people in communities to act, to be act, become activated in small groups in schools in community groups in families um to um kind of have a healthy competition between each other so the idea is that they have these kind of like cards and they swipe them on these beat boxes that are on um lampposts every like so whenever they're out and about walking and basically between lampposts they can earn points so the more you walk the more you earn and then they give prizes to the highest winning um groups at the end of it and they've just had their i mean a lot of public health uh, um organizations are commissioning them now and they've just had their one millionth person this last week who've actually um gone through this process um, is that, is signed that up in, to it is that in warwickshire staffordshire it's, it's all over the country but the different places are, are doing this i know leicester are, are doing it um other places many of the london boroughs have commissioned it and i suppose it's helpful because they're there for quite a few weeks so they kind of get people to establish the, the habits of becoming more active 
been very it's been very successful where it's where it's been. Any other good examples? Um, any other good examples? I suppose um, just, mm, that's the one that springs to mind more than anything else. I think the the example I give about the horticultural project, which is the kind of grow organic, um, which I was mentioned earlier. They're, they're a local organisation. Yeah. Do you want to yeah tell us a bit more about they're it? A community enterprise. Yeah. That, um, that um, they're based. They were initially based in. Um, in in the North Solihull area, but they also work across Birmingham now, in different in different projects, and they managed to get like key target groups who we would refer to as target groups in public health, um to to come in and um become more physically active with uh, gardening projects and horticulture projects because gardening counts too, <laughs> um and and that was just uh, that was maintained as well, so that kind of people then just took over the garden and it became their garden. It's part of the ownership, and they just they didn't need to be encouraged anymore to to do that. I think the other thing to say as well is while I'm on it all <laughs> is um the the important i think we what we often forget is around targeting belief systems because we often just say we need to do this and we'll put things in place but we don't really um think about what people's beliefs are and you know and a good example i think is when you're helping people to say quit smoking um often they'll have the belief that uh, for example if it was that bad, it wouldn't be legal, or that's one of the <laughs> hardest ones to go. <laughs> or another one would be, um, what was another one be? Uh, it's it stops me getting stressed. Yeah. So myth busting. So tackling people's beliefs. Yeah. yeah. Well, just tackling some of the beliefs um, uh, can be really helpful in getting people to a point where they change their behaviour. But we often don't think that one through as well. I think, and it's a good and. It's, point of focus that's really interesting um i think yeah i think the the point about beliefs is definitely i think one that we don't talk about enough because there's that's part of that motivation and the operating system because if we've rationalized a behavior and it's justified then that works there was also interestingly with grow organic it just hit me they were actually uh, or one of their team was getting uh, bid writing training with us like literally two weeks at kens ago so as you were describing that so that's quite interesting but a lot of what you actually said made me start to think about you know the wider ramifications which is if we want actually long-term change we need to work with the environment that within which and i think that lends itself to a lot of conversations around youth violence uh domestic abuse domestic violence so some of the actual you know huge issues in society actually sounds like it's not just about all those people there it's all about it sounds more like all of us here and what are we gonna do about this wider ecosystem so that's a, a really strong um way for me to start thinking and, and I, it makes me then wonder about the projects that we plan how often do we actually maybe build in environmental change and and looking at well okay yes you've done this intervention but then what's gonna evolve what's gonna change and how do we get maybe better facilities how do we make it easty um <laughs> that's gonna be like on, on the office wall now east. make it east, <laughs> make it east. <laughs> all points east <laughs> no i've got i've got um a personal example with cycling so if we just think about the environment for me i've my, my dad's an, an avid cycler he's he's a big he's sort of more of a hobbying cyclist rather than a, a sort of long distance cyclist and i've grown up with that and when i was in london i had a car as well because we needed to for some of the work that we're doing in general practice and on weekends i found a free parking space near oxford street and i used to drive down to oxford street 
when the legislation changes happened with Ulez recently, so you can't, so because my car's a diesel car, I can't now take it to Oxford Street, down, down that area any day of the week. It meant that I was cycling instead. And also because the year before they put that in, they doubled the cost of parking, paying for parking as well. It meant that I was less likely to go as well. So actually I cycled more. And so, like you said, it took, what, three months? It takes three months to get that in, into your system. So after three months, it became a year. And then I moved to Birmingham. And in Birmingham, they don't have the cycle infrastructure that they have in London. And there's less incentives. But actually, I'd already had that ingrained in me. And it was costly to park at places in, in Birmingham. And I got a parking fine. And after that, I was like, right, I'm cycling. <laughs> and it only took me 10 minutes to cycle from Brindley Place here. So it's faster than a car. If I was trying to do that in the car and then park and everything, it would have taken ages. And because it's become easier for me, I can take the train, I can take the train, Chiltern Railway train with, with my bike, but I can't take the Virgin with it because it's too much of a nightmare. So that means that I can take my bike now on the train to London and Bir- between London and Birmingham. So again, if you make the environment easier, it means that you can continue doing what you can do, but also conversely, make the other things less attractive. So make it more expensive to park, make it more expensive to drive into London. And it means that you end, you end up changing your behaviours. And, and actually at the moment, because of my, my lifestyle at the moment, moving between Birmingham and London, I do less exercise, but most of my exercise comes through on the bike now as a result. So that's what's helping me stay healthy, just because it's more difficult to park and easier to cycle. And also being in that environment of, I got a flat tire last week. Instead of de- dealing with it myself, I took it home and my dad sorted it out for me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, so, and then Kate then points out saying, at a national level, um, what do you think the key messages need to be so people can aspire to succeed in small steps? So I think this is now linking a little towards policy um my interpretation would probably be how can policy help support incremental change but um her question is yeah at a national level what do you think the key messages need to be so people can aspire to succeed in small steps uh yeah so i think that um i think many people see if you are talking about physical activity they don't tend to see it as um they tend to see it as running or, you know, um, but that's not, we're not trying to get people to run marathons, but that's often what people see. They see it as some unpleasant activity that it's going to be um, discomfort. a chore. Yeah, yeah. discomfort. Um, so I think it's one of the messages should be, or I think it probably already is, um, it's about small changes to people's lives. Um, so, and it's about making things enjoyable for people. <clears throat> um that's what it should be and fun so fun activities like the one we just talked about when we talked about the beat the street that was that's a kind of fun activity for people um and so i think that so can i talk about another example um so anybody heard you've heard of man versus fat at all the tv show or something like that no man versus food (laughs) (laughs) i think that's that's the opposite isn't it That's where it comes from there. <laughs> this is why we need, uh, we need the man versus bat. That's yes. what we need in our own He came because of the prequel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, the idea was that we commissioned man versus bat a few years ago and they were really successful for us. Um, it's basically what they, what they do is, and, and the guy who is the chief executive, Andrew Shanahan, 
he um he trialed it with us to see if it worked and it was a football team and it's not the first football team that we've that's been trialed but i think it was the way he went about doing it it was very cleverly done in terms of marketing his background was kind of marketing and journalism um and so he set up a men's football group and it was kind of it, the the beauty of it was that it was for me, for guys who were overweight so for men who would be a, what we call bmi over 30 um body mass index over 30 and they could join the group um and it was all men together in it for the same reasons because often it's people don't feel quite self-conscious so all the men were in the same boat essentially um and so the, they got together and ran these um courses that went to 14 weeks so really you know within the kind of beyond the time frame of three months of forming a new habit essentially um, and really big success with this and people um, who attended also started to uh, um, make new friends and their mental health improved so there was a right knock-on effects and it didn't feel like it was a kind of chore at all it felt like it was um, like a really enjoyable activity for people to do so I think trying to make it you know kind of these making it um, achievable for people make it the small steps making sure that it's um, you know uh, something that people are going to enjoy and find fun um, so I think that's the key and I think trying to get people as well to start thinking through what is uh you know what is it you want to do if you um if you want to make a change don't just say i want to be more active you need to actually say things like um what specifically what is it you're going to do make a commitment to yourself so be specific um uh, rather than saying i'm going to be active you can instead say I am going to walk to work three times this week and back um, and that's my goal for this week and then put it into place because often what people then do is if they don't achieve it they then say to themselves oh I've just failed it's just a complete disaster why have I bothered so it's quite easy to slip into that so getting people to make if then plans so if I don't manage to do this this week then next week I'll do this so they've got a plan in place for if they don't manage to achieve their target behavior that week um, so I think that's that's really helpful for people and I think the other thing is there's starting to be a number of apps for people and websites that people can visit and there's a really good one called stick so it's s-t-i-c-k-k and it's been developed Two by <laughs> <laughs> it's been developed by um behavioral economists um and it helps people it's using behavioral science to develop um to develop the, the pr uh, programs and it helps people to, to kind of start up on new um healthy behaviors so stop smoking eating healthy be more active um and it helps them kind of main, get to a point where they maintain that so that's a useful okay. resource so at a, at a national level it sounds like you're basically saying uh let's let, let's make it simple let's give make people really key steps let's not Fun. try and overwhelm people with big overarching statements that the nation's gotta you know half this by like just keep it realistic and and piecemeal yeah keep it keep it real for an, an individual individualized as well so people can you know it's personalized to them rather than you know not everybody wants to do couch to 5k yes, uh, you it, know yeah. so it's just about finding something that you like to do and that you you find attractive, attractive activity yeah yeah um i think from from two angles really on this one um one is on 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 bringing in primary care 
Um, and I think it's really at a national level, it needs to be how the funding is directed between public health and CCGs. Now, so I'm, I'm going to need you to do three yeah, things. Explain three primary things that, care, yeah. explain CCGs and explain the you know, public health. So primary care, essentially primary care means things that are done for health outside of hospital. Um, so that usually encompasses things like general practice and it might be other, other things such as physiotherapy. Um, and then the second one was about CCGs, wasn't it? So CCG is a clinical commissioning group and they are responsible for deciding what services are funded by the NHS in any part of the country. So each part of the country has their own clinical commissioning group. But what I don't know, because it's not my area of knowledge, is, is how that funding is currently set up in comparison to public health. I think they're two separate bodies. Yeah, public health is a separate body. In terms CCGs, of funding. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's where the disconnect is. Because public health, if we get it right, impacts on what's, what we're spending on in, in primary care, which is general practice. So that needs to come together. If we're, if we're trying to improve people's health in, in general practice by throwing more money into the NHS, but that money is being focused more on, say, medications and drugs, then that's not potentially a really good use of this in terms of en enabling people to live healthier lives. And public health is trying to do that. But I think there needs to be a, a complete bridge of this gap between the two, because, for example, Man versus Fat and Beat Street, both of those I've never heard of. And I feel like GPs, we should be knowing about this and we should be pushing this across to our patients. One of the success stories, which again, isn't for everyone, it is Couch to 5K. There's been a real drive from the Royal College of GPs to take on Couch to 5K and for GPs to sort of build a community within their own general practices. And this has happened in Warwickshire where I've noticed a few general practices on a Saturday will offer to go and do a couch, uh, go do the park run. So I'm getting confused between couch to 5K and park run. So park run, for example, that one's been also endorsed. They've both been endorsed by the Royal College GPs. And park run, there are some uh, known GPs out there. Uh, Zoe, Dr. Zoe Williams, one of them, she's on TV quite often and she, um, is an advocate for park runs and so these GP practices on Saturdays they will say we're going for a park run whoever's in our practice come and join us and say hello at the start line and then people do this together so that's a social improvement as well as an exercise improvement for me the overriding thing for me on this is making it making it easy so in a way that isn't seen as um, a negative but basically making people do things without insidiously without them even realizing that they're doing it whether that's walking to work whether that's cycling because it's easier to do than taking a congested tube or taking a train or even driving i think those kind of things needs to be in place and it's education as well if we want people to really do this it needs to be part of the curriculum it can't just be phse which stands for public health social education yeah, is that yeah, right yeah I'm not not teacher, yeah, but yeah, PHSC. No, right. I remember I remember that at school as well when it was first first just launched. But it needs to be more than that. If if we want people to be healthier, then there needs to be sort of more solid subjects around that and why it's important for them. Um, like for example, with my entrepreneur hat on, if if we want people to understand what it is to run a business, then we need to give them the skills to do that. If we want to become an entrepreneur or nation, then we've got to give that. To, to the schools and same with health we've got to, we've got to provide that to schools and we've got to put weight on it so it's not just thrown at the end 
of, of a day or throwing in the middle of the day and optional. Yeah. So actually almost the conversation, it sounds like you're all saying at a national level is not only make things easier, but actually how do we start to embed it in some of our infrastructure, whether it's education, whether it's communications, but then kind of coming from that communications angle, you've named three or four experiences between you that seem to have, you know, either caught fire or caught lots of professionals' attention. So I know with this organization, uh, Steps to Your Healthy Future, that they've been looking at a campaign around uh, sugar and kind of, it's called the One Less campaign, which is, you know, maybe one less spoon of sugar. I don't know the full details, but even just that as a notion, how, again, this isn't me asking you as experts, just your inkling, your lived experience as professionals, how do you think certain campaigns catch fire professionally? Why do certain campaigns get endorsed by Royal College of uh, GPs? And why might public health like a particular campaign over another? What, are there any things that you've observed in, in your working experiences why certain ones are more popular than others? Or You mean with the public? Yeah, with the public mm, and yeah. with professionals. Because again, arguably... Uh, let's just say mental health first aid. I'm I'm quite impressed with that because mm-hmm. again, it's not the first type of first aid intervention, but that one has caught fire and there's got to be a, a reason. And I do wonder whether it's influence of professionals makes it a little bit easier. Like, you know, which comes first? The professionals like it, then the public love it or do the public love it and then the professionals listen? I don't think it tends to be public first, but I could be wrong. I think with certainly with the public health campaigns, they're designed sort of centrally. So there's a public health um, insights team that design um, the marketing team that designs the campaigns based on behavioural insights. So a lot of research goes into those campaigns. And then I'm guessing that what happens is that those campaigns then run and depending on the reaction, so they're piloted often as well first, there's lots of iterations um, and they're piloted. And then if people are responsive in the right way to them, because the people might respond, but not always in the right way, then that's when they would um, kind of roll them out and they become kind of part of, um, the, you know, I can think of an example. So for example, Stoptober. So that was, I think that was probably just a one-off initially to see how that went, but it's worked really well. So it's getting people to quit smoking for the whole month. Um, and now it's kind of a national yearly thing and it's really kind of taken over from no smoking day mm-hmm. and the benefit of that is it's a whole month so rather than just one day uh, quitting so that is the um, and we know that when people stop for a month they tend to then stay, stay mm. stopped and, and, and you using that example helps I'm, I'm then thinking well how did Stoptober use the whole change of the environment and then I, 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 I can remember times where uh, alternative patches and all of that then become more available mm. then it was a case of let's support employers to make it easier for employees so actually that's a, a really good point where maybe actually to make certain campaigns work you've also got to help the environment in which that intervention can occur and I wonder like how do you access professionals and GPs such as yourself how does a campaigner access you as I mean, a GP. This is exactly what I think we should have more of, which is getting these campaigns to GPs as well. And I don't know what that communication cascade looks like, but I think it needs to be an internal communication because as GPs, what we see about Stoptober is exactly what everyone else sees. We see it in the media, 
we see on the adverts and we see it in the press, but we don't get our own internal communications about it. So for example, what is portrayed to the public shouldn't necessarily be what we see about. The information should be slightly different. So we, for example, should know that in Stoptober, I know that the, the, the chance of a successful quit attempt during or after Stoptober is much higher. I don't know the exact figure, but if every GP knew that, because I've, I've gone away and read that and, and worked that out. If every GP had an email saying, Stoptober's coming up, your, your patients have twice, are twice as likely to quit smoking. That, and that went to the nurses who normally deal with the stop smoking cessation in the practice or, or the pharmacists. Then we might even be able to increase rates even higher because they're ready. They're ready for more appointments. They're ready to offer appointments. They might even text on the free text messaging services that you might have with your GP. They might even text them and say, it's Stoptober come and stop smoke up come we'll help you stop smoking so i think communications internally could could improve because we get really good communications from a medicines management perspective if there's a drug that's being recalled or there's a potential side effect that's new on the market or a new medicine we get really good internal communications and that does come from nhs england so i think the same communication should come through from public health um what was the question that you asked earlier it was about an example uh, no, how, how do things get picked up? Yeah, how do certain campaigns sort of get catch fire? I think we're in the age of the influencers. And I think there may be two, two parts to it. One is that the government and um, public health, you can correct me, are picking up the people who they feel are influencers and influencers independently are picking up certain things. So, for example, you've, you've got to look at, um, and, and, and you've got to give credit to certain media companies, including the BBC. So um, an example is Dr. Zoe Williams. Not everyone knows who she is, but she's on one of the morning breakfast shows. ITV. ITV, good morning. This morning. This yeah, morning. Yeah. Not that so I watch she, she's, so, she's, so you do watch it. <laughs> so now we know what you're doing in the you morning. <laughs> that is that why your day starts at midday? Fern and Phil, <laughs> and they're, they're my, my, my spiritual gurus. <laughs> but yeah, so she, she's on there. So she's, she's now an influencer, and she's, I, I'm, I think, I'm pretty sure she's on Instagram. But She is on Instagram. Yeah. So, so, and then the general public see her all the time. So it makes sense for a GP who's an ex-gladiator to who's into fitness and nutrition to be the face of a campaign. So she's endorsing, I think it's Couch to 5K or Parker and one of them. She's endorsing that. Then people are going to see that and they're going to do that. And she has a, she has a, a place to talk about it on TV. And then you've got um, another doctor called Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, who did Doctor in the House in, on BBC, which was hugely powerful when it came out two or three years ago. And again, his message has been picked up independently, I would say, because of the support he's had around him with the medical community. That was more of a grassroots support. He's then written his two books that have come out, and they have had huge response from, from the public. They're bestsellers, not because people have endorsed them necessarily, it's because the information in them is excellent. In a way, they're, they're both influencers. People are trusting these, these individuals, but it's making sure you trust the right person as well. But I, I would say that these two individuals are the, type, the right type of people that should be out there and should be continuing to say what they're doing and what's working. Okay, that's really yeah. interesting. So who else would you say doctors listen to? So doctors listen to you know, their associations, and I'm guessing NHS. The TV. Really? Yeah, I, and, and social media, but I'd, I'd put that in the bracket of anything visual video based people listen it's really hard to filter information out there 
And so that's why that new, the new government organization has been set up to try and deal with that as well. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but I think it's just coming through now. Um, and there's adverts on Spotify, for example, on make sure you don't just believe everything that you read on the internet. And I think they're from, from the government. So it's, it's, it is the video, but it's obviously being careful what, what you read, what you watch. So one, stra- I'm, I'm sort of digressing on this, but one strategy to try and deal with that is by combating the negative videos that, or the, the ones with the wrong information with more and more good information so you try and flood it out. The other way to do it is to directly address the information that's not true or not correct and, and, and call them out on it. So I think there's a double strategy there. But I think people are picking up information from, from videos. That's really interesting, isn't it? So, I mean, some of the takeaway for me is very much think about making things easy, easy to access, break down really complex information, make things people-centered, like start with, you know, the people first, um, understand that actually creating visual context in order for people to really absorb and then the rest is as it sounds like just time and patience which is give people the environment in which to make the right decisions and and wait and see um what happens yeah that's been really um for me really insightful i feel like i just got a phd in like in 40 minutes just because it's that like high quality knowledge but in a in a way that it's really um absorbable um marianne what are your well, I'm actually thinking about uh, the use of technology within, you know, the, the area and what your thoughts are on that. I mean, when you've talked about the app, um, how do you see that being carried forward and what kind of advice would you give to people who are looking to kind of influence and, you know, make waves um, in health, how they can use technology to possibly it gain um, insights or use data or potentially make innovative, you know, um, campaigns that will help? There are, in terms of like healthy lifestyles, there's a lot of apps out there already. Um, so the, the kind of, I suppose the concern I've got is that they're not all evidence-based apps. So they're, some of them are better than others, but um, there's a lot of them purporting to kind of help you to do this, that and the other. But the evidence that they actually work um, isn't, is a bit uh, patchy, really. So I think, I think when we've got a responsibility... Um, you know, in working in public health field to make sure we let people know and also pro- mm. to professionals what is, um, you know, an evidence-based um, app. So we know that the techniques that it's um, recommending people do actually um, work for people. And that's going back to people really checking sources, essentially, I yeah. think, isn't it? Like, yeah. Any, anyone could put an app out there and anyone can build something. Um the most shocking one for me that I'd heard about but never seen it is a patient came in on a weekend in East London and told me her blood pressure readings. And I said, so how do you know, do you have a blood pressure machine at home? She goes, no, it's an app on my phone. So I said, I know about this app. Let me see it. And she literally just put her fingerprint on the app and it told her blood pressure. And I said, that's, you can't measure your blood pressure like that. She goes, look, it's a number. It's a reading, look, it's got great reviews and it's got thousands of reviews saying it's great and stuff. And I, and I had to show her, look, your blood pressure's 20 points out on my blood pressure machine compared to that one. You need to bin this stuff. This is not, this is not safe. And so when people don't have the knowledge, you can't blame them for picking up certain things and then saying, this is, this is, this is safe. There is a new um, organization out there called Orca, and they have um, launched, they, they have been around now for about three or four years and they independently re- verify health-based apps. 
So there are thousands and thousands of apps out there. So how do you know which one? They, they obviously can't verify all of them, but they provide a, a service for that. Um, and I think they've just been endorsed by the NHS as well. Um, but I think it's with NHS Digital. Um, so that if you, if you look out for their, for their logos, you can find out. They actually rate apps. So you, you can see how good the evidence is, not just a black and white. It's either good or bad. It's, it's how good is it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Good advice. Definitely. So, so, yeah, so, so technology is yeah. moving so fast that the regulation can't keep up with it. Yeah. And so this is now, I think this year and the end of last year is, is where this, this regulatory, the regulatory bodies, whether it's from the government or whether it's from the NHS or independent, they're all starting to come through now. Um, I mean, I, I've just, I've, I've had an online healthcare company, which I've just recently, recently closed down. And the thing that I've learned from it is it's just another medium. At the moment, if we're looking at it from an information perspective, technology is another medium, but we shouldn't look to it as the answer either. Like what, the conversation today actually hasn't really been about technology because initially we thought technology was a nirvana for everything, but, but it isn't because technology isn't human. Essentially, the things that we've got to put in place are human. So whether that's behaviors we're talking about, things that people do talking about walking and cycling and things like that that you can't just by downloading an app you're not going to become healthier it's about what you do with it as well and i think that comes down to how does that motivate people an app as well so yeah i'm not like you said like how what's the evidence base behind and how good is an app going to be i'm i don't know what i can't think of an app yet apart not from ones that enable like healthcare i may i mean or, the, you know yeah. the beach street that's it. Was that mm, like a yeah, check-in yes, system is, kind yeah, of thing? Yeah. So I mean, in that in that degree, like, that brings out the yeah. human element, doesn't yeah, it? Exactly. It brings yeah. out that. That was it's another the thing. Best that was, of both, isn't it? There's, yeah. There's gamification yeah. as well, uh-huh, and another it. big yeah. area yeah. trying yeah. trying to get gamification. Yeah. Whether that's and it's a big growth area for businesses, which has grown from advertising and marketing, and that's coming now into sort of public health, I guess, mm. isn't it? Well, that's what beat the street essentially is. It's yeah. Gamification. Yeah. yeah. So possibly if someone from a health organisation wanted to go down that road, that's the kind of area that they'd look into rather than the apps. They'd look at gamification it's got because a lot of it's potential. kind of social yeah. prescribing and it helps people. I mean, to that social prescribing, I mean, you, you'll know the definition more than you can explain it more than I can, but it's getting yeah, people so, out so, yeah so um social prescribing really it depends i suppose in its traditional sense it was gps prescribing um kind of activities that were often kind of supported through another agency so for example a health trainer type agency or just signposting people to particular activities yeah. because there's a recognition that you know a lot of um a lot of the appointment time that you'll spend as a gp spent seeing people who don't actually have a physical condition, or they might have a condition, but there's not much more you can actually do at that particular time. But they're uh, presenting really with loneliness, mm. um, and um, yeah, and the social. And there's a lot, a growing body of evidence around social connectivity and the impact it has on people's or a range of conditions, people's mental and physical health. There's a there's a, there's a new program on social and lifestyle prescribing with the Royal College of GPs and now they've trained over 600 GPs in this. Um, I'm due to sign up to the course as well. I'm really looking forward to it because if we can give more than just pills, but do it in a way that is still scientific and evidence-based. And, but constructive. And constructive and, and something that we can monitor and follow up because it's no good just saying to someone, 
right, we'll see you in six months time. Just eat healthier. Mm. That just won't, won't change anything. Mm. But if we give them specific constructs mm. in a way that a prescription might be done, mm. then they might get ownership of something that they're doing daily, mm. things like that. I think, I think you're more likely to, to enable change, especially when the health professional saying it and the health professional is going to hold you accountable in a few weeks time or a few months time. And, and that lends itself to people do, or there are people that do want to be told what to do um, yeah. and they feel comfort in a professional telling them what to do. It's now just making sure that we equip mm. that professional with a range of tools rather than things that might be intrusive mm. and invasive. Um, because uh, I believe in the black country area and I want to say it's Black Heath. But I do know of a place where I think back in 2017, they started doing social prescribing almost as a pilot. I don't know where that project is now, but that's really, uh, yeah, that's such a good point that actually let's, it's about people, never yeah. forgetting it's about people and then, you know, doing the right things in, in the right order. For any policymakers out there, let's bring public health and primary care together. Let's get that communication better because I think that really makes a difference, especially with... It, within the medical community, the doctors are asking for it. Patients really want it. This this alternative way to to manage things. There there is no one out there who wants to take ten medicines a day, and there are so many people out there who, given an alternative, would take it. So I think I think together we can continue to drive that message. Yeah, thank brilliant. you so so much. Yeah, thank you. Very thorough. I feel like now that I can go home and put together a three-month plan yeah. of what I'm going to do. And yeah, then if yeah. that one doesn't work the next week, it's yeah. all good. So thanks ever so much for your time. And um, that is uh, the end of the Leading Communities podcast this week. Have you got any social media platforms that you want to let people know about that they can connect with you on at all? I am currently active on Instagram, and I don't mind if people follow me there. It's at Dr. Soda. So that's the at sign D-R-S-O-D-H-A. And that's probably my most active platform. I'm on Twitter. <laughs> I think I'm Alison Trout too on Twitter. Yeah. One T. T R. One T. Yeah. One L in Alison. Yeah. All right. Brilliant. Okay, brilliant. Well, thanks ever so much, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To keep up to date with Leading Communities podcast releases and updates, follow us at A4UCIC, at Ideal Directions, and at That's All Media.